1: And welcome back to Keep It, the revamped Keep It, which is not resembling the usual Keep It, but I'm loving the way it's looking. You know what this is like? Saved by the Bell, the new class. And I'm Principal Screech or whatever <laughs> happened on that show. I don't know. Uh, I'm Louis Fortell. You remember me. I'm usually on this show. But we have two new combatants this week. One who is a returning legend, basically the Joan Rivers of Keep It, who has been here enough times uh, and with enough saltiness and rancor to uh uh uh, thrill audiences of johnny carson it's guy branham hi guy
2: hello lewis good to be here i don't want to be saved by the bell the new class we don't remember those children i want to be leah remini from when they went to the beach club over the summer
1: wow what a summer zach morris had he was very confused about both kelly and leah remini (laughs) and audiences uh We're thrilled to be introduced to Leah Remini. It was years until we got her in The King of Queens, of course. So I don't know really what she did between Saved by the Bell, the college spectacle, or not the high school, whatever that that year was called, and The King of Queens. Um,
2: I mean, before it, she was on the um, Who's the Boss spinoff, Living Dolls, uh, where she co-starred with, I think, Halle Berry. Um, Mm. Yes. Uh, Leah Remini what? Like truly one of Hollywood survivors Like Shannon Doherty level
1: Wow Thank you for putting that Into perspective for oh, me Oh wow that helped uh, That helped <laughs> And also I can't believe this A first timer to keep it Somebody who A movie is not classic anymore Until I have read Her take on it Um, And I just want to say that as a child, I swore I would take no other Angelicas before Houston, and I think this one rises to her level. It's Angelica Jade Bastian, the New York Magazine vulture writer and sometimes Criterion contributor, who is here today to talk to us about anything and everything. And I fucking love her. Welcome to Keep It.
3: Oh, that's so beautiful. My ego thanks you.
1: Oh, that's that's what it's about here. Have you met Ira Madison? Okay.
3: (laughs) Ooh, I laughed a little hard at that. <laughs>
1: See? Right. Um, Now, let's just talk about what entertainment has sustained you guys this summer. What have you cared about before we get into the actual uh, topics this week, uh, which include Nope, the new Jordan Peele movie, and the new Ethan Hawke-directed miniseries about the great <gasps> Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, the last movie stars, and whatever happened to real movie stars. What, what are you guys into lately?
3: Mm, what am I into lately? Not much that's like new to me to be on- or like new this year to be honest, yeah um I am a hater. I have refined my hate <laughs> for the modern age very well um but I recently watched this really great film called Chameleon Street. It's currently on Criterion Channel right now and it's from nineteen eighty nine and it won the Sundance Jury Award the following year, and it's a really amazing completely indie, low-budget <laughs> film that was able to come up with its money by asking Black business people in Flint, Michigan, for help. And it's directed, written, and starring a, a really great Black actor uh, named Wendell, I think. Oh, God, I'm forgetting his last name. Um, but he basically plays a Black con artist who keeps leveling up. He pretends to be a surgeon and actually performs a hysterectomy, and he pretends to be French. It's like very interesting, very evocative film that I'm surprised I hadn't seen, because I think it's like one of the greats of the of Black cinema period. And it's just really frustrating that Wendell B. Harris, that's his name, was ah. unable to really find inroads in the industry at all. It's like his only film as a director uh, and star. But I highly recommend it. it's It's weird and rich and so well acted. It's really stunning that he had this level of talent for a first film at that budget. It's just, you know, one of those frustrating reminders that pretty much everyone Black in the film industry in this country has, except for very rare um, examples to the contrary, have never been able to really craft the careers they deserve, no matter what level of talent they have.
1: Also, this is like, there are those movies every once in a while where it feels like the people in them have few connections to other movies. And so there's no real inroads to learning about this movie. You know, this isn't an exact example, but like the Barbara Loden directed movie, Wanda. I mean, you might know her name through Elia Kazan, Mm -hmm. but... Like, you have to be told to seek out this movie since it's the only one she made. So yeah. I can't even give you a reference point to another one, you know? It was
2: yeah. it was such a chilling realization for me a couple of years ago that no black actress had received more than two Academy Award nominations. It's just, it so underscores. I think we're now at three with Viola Davis, but like... She's at
1: four. four. Uh, okay, mm-hmm. But
2: it's just, it is so reflective of that idea. Uh, but that is something that only happened within... The last five years, it's so reflective of the idea of just like the possibility of building a career, people who gave us amazing work, and then there was no second place for them to go.
1: Correct. Yes. Guy, have you been, um, what have you been slurping down this delectable Well, since
2: Angelica insists on going highbrow, I am going (laughs) to throw you a trash and then I will throw you a highbrow. First of Mm. all, like if you would ever like to just lose your summer inside i cannot recommend uk's love island
1: enough okay i just started watching this so go ahead
2: i mean it asks the age-old question if you put a bunch of hot people in one warm place are they gonna end up hooking up and every season
1: (laughs) i love suspense it
2: manages to answer the question in new and innovative ways and and this season like how much they know what they're doing really came to there in the last episode that came out on Hulu um, in a season that was pretty stable, pretty boring. They just took the tallest, hottest guy from season four and introduced him into the ant farm. And, um, like, no one understands how to destroy a relationship like Adam Collard. But to go a little bit highbrow, mm. Louis, um, have you ever seen um, Jean Dillement by Chantal Ackerman, the three-hour... No,
1: I'm... I'm very undereducated about Chantal Ackerman, but Angelica just lit up like the sun. Okay, well,
2: a thing (laughs) I didn't know about Chantal Ackerman because she made sort of the sparest, sparsest, sort of like feminist film about being trapped in domesticity. What I didn't realize is that in 1986... She made a musical about the mall. Like, um, it is on Criterion right now. Absolutely everyone is wearing, like, uh, sherbet-colored clothes at all time. It stars a Belgian pop star. Um, mm. it, it, and it's from an era when we didn't make musicals. So it's, like, so mm. magical and fun to watch. And you're, like, watching it, and you're like, why did why did this cold, judgmental lesbian make this movie? And then in the last moments, it just sort of says in the most offhand way, ladies, why are we staying in heterosexuality or capitalism? And uh, it's just, it's it's such a delight. It's so much fun. Um, And it's just sitting there on your Criterion channel if you want to go take a look at
4: it.
1: I love baffling musicals of the past. There's one from that era. Francis Ward Coppola directed the famous flop, One from the Heart. Yeah. With Terry Garr and Raul Juliet. Now, I just want to say, I'm glad life put them together. <laughs> I think it was a good idea. I'm thrilled to have seen it. It is such a shocking misfire. If you, the difference between Francis Ford Coppola in the seventies and Francis Ford Coppola in the eighties is to say he fell off a cliff. It's like he fell off <laughs> a cliff and then, and then hit the bottom and then fell off another cliff down, um, you know, <laughs> but that said, uh, cotton club has some good parts. Yes. Uh, and if you see the the extra scenes with Jack Hay is also in uh, Cotton oh, Club. Oh, wow. Well, an earlier Jack Hay appearance in the mm. um, extended version of the Cotton Club. But um, and then, of course, also the Peter Bogdanovich misfire at Long Last Love with um, uh, Madeline Kahn and Sybil Shepard, among others. E- Eileen Brennan, uh, all these people who, again, should be hanging out. Uh, <laughs> but lo and behold, Peter Bogdanovich, not the man to make a musical, I guess. Uh, At any rate, thank you for your contributions. I decided to move on with the episode. Today, as I said, we're going to be talking about Nope, the new Jordan Peele movie, uh, which it's just nice to have a director where you have to talk about the movie, regardless if you have any opinions about it. It's nice to have somebody who's making something that mainstream and that um, uh, discussable uh, that feels like a a thing of the past in and of itself. And speaking of things in and of the past, we will be discussing uh, Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, the subject of a new uh mini series by famed uh before sun Satir <laughs> Ethan Hawke and uh talk about what we're missing in current movie stars if anything mm-hmm. and if Kiki Palmer is bringing it back okay uh, we'll see <laughs> and Angel- like i've made up my mind about that
3: i love kiki though i'm more worried like about industry actually cultivating stars but we'll get into that we'll get that's into true. that that's
1: true absolutely we'll be right back with more kiki There are 100 days until the midterms. If I had a violin, I would play a staccato string thing right now. We know now just how high the stakes are. And on November 8th, we need to make sure our voices are heard and protected. Join Vote Save America's Midterm Madness program and take our Count Me In pledge to volunteer, including our July 31st weekend of action. Get involved in the most important elections in 2022 at votesaveamerica.com midterms. Can you hear the passion and urgency in my voice? Good, because this is Bone Chilling, and we all need to help. Nope. The third film from Jordan Peele opened this weekend to positive reviews and earned $44 million over the weekend, dethroning Thor Love and Thunder, which is the most harlequin romance novel title of all time, from the number one spot. It's the latest horror thriller from Peele, one of the few remaining filmmakers who can deliver original studio blockbusters of this scale and cultural excitement. I just want to say my first uh, reaction to hearing the name Jordan Peele now is I thought to myself, well, he's kind of like our Rod Serling. And then I remember he gave us a Twilight Zone TV show we barely cared about. So my observations suck and (laughs) I will be revamping them. (laughs) What were your first impressions watching? Nope. Were you excited for it in general, or uh, we're weary of uh, horror in this day and age, or what?
3: I love horror. Horror's yeah. Horror's my bitch. Okay, we it's horror and noir. Those are my two genre girlies. They give what a bitch wants and needs. Um, I'm going to let people who maybe are more positive on the film go first. I don't want to seem like a hater off the bat.
1: but you do it so well we want you to be yourself
3: (laughs) i do but i'm trying to be a better person lewis i'm trying no actually that's bullshit i don't really give a fuck if people think i'm a hater (laughs) i have complicated feelings about jordan peele's work um and i think it's a testament to how shitty the industry is that we like praise original blockbuster's that have even a shred of intelligence and craft. I'm like, damn, this is how bad shit is that it's like, oh, wow, I can discuss a movie. It's great. And I'm like, damn, what the hell is going on? Um, With Nope, I was very curious to see how he would continue to develop. And the cast is really great. I especially love Keith David popping up in anything. My fucking king. It feels like, you know, considering he was like in They Live and the thing, it almost feels like this little nod to Carpenter in a way. Like, remember how great this dude was and like all these great horror movies. And that's where my positivity ends. I don't even think the movie's bad. I don't want to like be like, oh, this movie's shit. It's not shit. It's just to me, huh? Just I want to, I wanted to shrug after like getting out of it. I wasn't moved, awed. And awe is very important to
1: blockbusters
3: to me. I think that's like one of the key things to a great blockbuster is like evoking a sense of awe in the audience, like, holy shit.
1: Like I'm actually going to concur with you on most of these statements, but I wanted to add another footnote. Hmm. Uh, and s- similar to the Keith David thing, also makes a cameo is Osgood Perkins, who used to be known as Oz Perkins, but he's Anthony Perkins's son, of course, horror icon, gay icon, um, pencil neck icon. We we exist. Um, uh, and it was cool to see him uh, in the movie too. Guy, what did you think of the film? Just side note
3: on Perkins though. He's a good, he's a fun horror director. So, you know, if you yeah. want to mm-hmm. look at some off the beaten path, horror films, he's interesting.
2: Um, I hate a horror movie. I truly do not want to watch a horror movie. Um, I usually... One once a year there is a horror movie we're all supposed to watch and I will read the Wikipedia entry for it. Um, and that is my approach. I was mostly struck by, I, I'm fascinated by how much every like Gen X and older millennial director it, like is preoccupied with Spielberg and the amount of sort of like mm. Spielbergian energy mm-hmm. that there was um, mm-hmm. ar- around the film. I enjoyed it. Like Kiki Palmer like, was such a, like, it exists in a, wh- Nope exists in sort of, like, a horror world, but it also exists in a Western world. And Kiki Palmer mm-hmm. um, having to play the role of the sidekick whose constant banter provides energy while, like, the quiet brooding guy at the middle is quiet and broods. Um, I was, you know, delighted and in love. And then also trying to get around, like, the movie throws a lot of ideas at you um, when it comes to, like, Mm -hmm. representation in media. Um, There is sort of, like, a a side plot with um, a 90s kids sitcom um, that, like, is asking a lot of questions about representation and objectification. um, And... Uh, Trauma. And trauma. And I was, like... I was fascinated by these issues and, you know, maybe I am too trite. Maybe I walked into a Jordan Peele movie just sort of saying like, like, what am I supposed to get? Like, you know, Mm. what's, what's the big politics here? Um, But it was interesting to me. I kind of liked that it had ambiguity to it. Um, And so
1: this is, oh,
2: oh, go ahead. Oh, and, and I also just like, I mean, for me, like I didn't like that the alien looked as much like um, pieces of fabric as. It
3: yeah, I really didn't <laughs> like that design at all, and I'm like, I don't know, just.
0: Um, and the there was idea something very- is
3: interesting. Sorry, the idea is interesting about like a living ship kind yeah. of idea instead of, you know, oh, here are a bunch of aliens that you know people would meet after being sucked up and get probed or whatever the fuck they want to do. Um, But I just felt it wasn't like everything in the film was just not built upon enough for me. I just felt like even the emotional threads kind of fizzled out and it was good at gesturing at ideas, but not really exploring them, I guess.
1: So we should say that this is a movie about a Black-owned horse ranch where they give horses and animals to movies. And they're sort of down on their luck at the moment. And that's Daniel Kaluuya and uh, Kiki Palmer who run it. And then, so they live in this Western style, giant open area ranch thing that basically comes under attack by something paranormal. And they end up trying to deal with that and then trying to capture it on film. I have to say, I felt like I was missing the scene that set up the stakes for why they would really care to capture it on film, like, or that why we would care, you know, it was just, That to me felt very Spielbergian in the Super 8 mold, Mm -hmm. and that's not a Mm -hmm. movie I'm hoping to revisit. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Um, But to me, a problem with this movie was, as much as the performances were all pretty good, and I enjoyed the Mm -hmm. Stephen Yoon detour Mm -hmm. that led us into a a reference to 90s SNL, which which can't be brought up enough, as far Mm -hmm. as I'm concerned. (laughs) I felt like this movie wanted to be like The Shallows with Blake uh, Lively where it's all happening to one person because like the horror of it is that something is so big and so all-encompassing, but you are stuck beneath it. So to me, that is a scary kind of dichotomy. Mm. Whereas with this, it felt like, well, this isn't that scary. Everybody's aware of it and like we can all work together to deal with it. I don't know. It it felt like it lost the scary stakes as it went on because as it began there are a couple of jump scares that I thought were scary, but the minute you see the aliens, it's like a Shyamalan movie. The minute the aliens appear, I'm like, shrug. Oh, that's what, we yeah. that's what we're caring about, you know?
3: Yeah, I get that. Like, for me, I definitely think Kiki Palmer is like a charismatic breath of fresh air. She has such great energy. She understands the camera, I think, on a very instinctual level. Um, I just felt like, the characters were cutouts and that can like i i need just a bit more definition i need a bit more and then i was frustrated because i'm like it does suggest these interesting ideas about their family dynamics um and you know there was like a few flashbacks to see the father and I, like maybe one or two played by keith david and i was just like at Like, as it continued, I was like, oh, yeah, he's not coming back. They're, like, just suggesting this and, like, not doing enough with it. And I find that frustrating. But sometimes, you know, I just ask sometimes a lot of films. I can totally admit that.
2: I mean, like, oh, a man movie that has a cipher at its center? I'm shocked. You know? <laughs> like, I, Like, I guess I go into things like this not with the highest of expectations. And I think... More than anything, those first five minutes when they talk about Edward Moybridge and they talk about the like just the idea of that sequence is where we learned that horses' feet are sometimes all not on the ground. Um, but that in this very famous photo is a human being whose identity has been removed. I just spent the whole rest of the movie trying to figure out how that fit into the puzzle of there's an alien, what wants to eat me? And uh, like, maybe in doing that, I was giving the movie too much credit, but it was, it made for a fascinating journey for me. Also, let's not ignore this Brandon Perea, he's really hot. Like,
1: That's true. there is yeah. nothing
2: like watching a man truly fill out a Fry's uniform.
1: <laughs> also there's just something about Best Buy Geek Squad culture that I think should be represented more and he does really well with that character yeah. to bring that kind of quote-unquote uh a pseudo expert feel to mm-hmm. uh, uh that role but you're right I felt like this was a bit comparable to the movie Us and that it's like you're giving us all these threads and you want us to think about them but I don't know it's like it's like a rebus I can't solve you're like I'm I'm looking at the the composite of everything and it's not all fitting together. And I am trying to opt out and just enjoy the entertainment value of the thriller instead. Well, I mean, mm. sometimes
2: it's so like it can be so nice to have something that you can't quite put together, but you really want to know that the filmmaker does. And here yeah. I don't know that I
1: was certain of that.
3: Yeah, I am going to say something a little spicy.
1: Oh well, we lo- well, you know, you know how pale I am. Can I handle it? I don't know. I don't, I, 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 I watch those hot wings shows, and I, like, I, I would pass away. Oh, yeah. I would
3: fucking kill at hot wings. Holy shit! I would be a monster. On the- I'm never. You know, that's not gonna happen.
1: Oh. I, I would, would look like someone person. set Julie Andrews on fire. That's what it would look oh, like. No.
3: anyway. <laughs> that's such an image, though. <laughs> um. So I think there's a difference between ambiguity. Which I think something like Get Out did have in certain like veins and aspects Mm -hmm. of it, but not too dramatically. And something like Us and Nope that isn't, doesn't feel ambiguous so much as incoherent in terms of how it handles thematics, character. And this is the spicy part. I think Jordan Peele and his success with Get Out has like sort of tricked audiences in, into believing there's more there. And so they overanalyze everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember hearing some bonker. Oh, one of the weirdest ones to me was like, oh, from Get Out, I remember seeing this tweet, like basically saying, oh, remember the moment where... Daniel Kaluuya's main character, like, uses the cotton to put in his ears. And someone was like, oh, that's speaking so much to our history and our people who had to pick. And I was like, Negro, okay, look, (laughs) not everything in a movie has that level of meaning, you know, that is that granular. I mean, sometimes, but like a a lot of times you'll hear from filmmakers, they're like, where the fuck did Mm -hmm. critics get this? You know, like. Yeah. I didn't even think of this being like evocative of their emotions. I just thought it looked cool, which is fine. But I just, and my problem isn't even just that, oh, I don't think us and Nope are really doing much with their ideas. I think there's also going to continue continuously be ever vaulting levels of pressure on Jordan Peele in a way that Black filmmakers get far too much which is you can't just be hey this was a shrug worthy or just fine or enjoyable blockbuster movie it's like you have to be a fucking genius who's reinventing the wheel every time and i like i don't know i feel sort of bad for some of these filmmakers where i'm like people are putting pressure on them and the movies to and i think this is what happens with black film and it's something i've been thinking about a while because of the struggle we have always dealt with in this country and continue to deal with and the aftermath of slavery, basically, we're like expected to, to artists are expected to have our race on us. It's not just you're making art. You are saying something about Black people as an artist and a writer, whatever, especially as a critic, I think, this is sort of riffing on a Greg Tate quote from Flyboy in the Buttermilk. Um, but basically you're tasked with explaining Black people to everybody else and explaining Black people also to themselves. And is that too much pressure on an artist? And I feel like <laughs> that's like kind of, and I think like Jordan Peele is one of the greatest examples because Get Out was crucial in to this Black horror boom we are now in. Them, Candyman, Antebellum. There's so many of them now. And I think there's also a pressure for those other filmmakers to do stuff that resembles Jordan Peele's work because Hollywood like wants to replicate success and thinks the way to do that is to like follow the same mold of film that was successful did. And I just worry about Black filmmakers. And that was something I was thinking about. I was like, even though this is shrugworthy, I'm glad he exists and is doing this work. And it's just too much pressure though. No... Film or TV show can solve for us what is happening in real life, and I think sometimes audiences want to see freedom and only joy and all this shit only on screen because we're suffering so much in real life, and I don't know it's something that this movie did bring up for me
2: I mean, there so frequently can be an onus to be important, like yeah. um like that our pop culture treat stuff made by minority groups either as trash that is just for them the only way to sort of like liberate yourself above that is to make something that like is important and says something and there isn't the possibility of just you know it's so much harder to make something that's just fun and still have it be respected
1: yeah. Also I think there's something there's there's a difference between expecting someone to deliver entertainment and deliver and expecting someone to deliver relief <laughs> which are two like kind of like ps- like parallel threads but like one i think is a much more gargantuan ask than the other mm-hmm. you know you know to like we're asking these people to be monumental unpackers mm-hmm. you know in a, in a way that you would never just expect of like uh, or if if a white filmmaker did it we we, we would congratulate them even more cuz we never had that expectation for them in the first yeah. place
3: mm, yeah definitely definitely but you know i'm still excited to see how he continues to develop Spielberg, like, dick sucking, though, on fucking screen is not fucking interesting to me. And I fucking like a lot of Spielberg's work because he's a craftsman. That motherfucker will give you some shots. But y'all, come on. There's other filmmakers, baby. It's not just Spielberg and like Hitchcock or whatever the fuck.
2: Also, your Hitch, <laughs> like, your Spielberg impre- uh, obsession is truly an obsession with the first 13 years of his work. It's oh, totally. Like, it's sort of ignoring the fact that, like, you know, by 85, he was making The Color Purple, like, by, you know, um, that he turned his head to more interesting things than, wow, this cypher of a little boy, it goes on an adventure.
4: Yeah.
1: This is always a racer. Racer. I thought you were going to get into the late, uh, latter stage works of Audrey Hepburn, and you failed me. All right. <laughs> um. Yeah. No. I also want to say it is. Uh, this movie was largely entertaining throughout, but again, it felt to me like the the first of all the set piece that becomes the the linchpin for the end of the movie. I felt was very obvious. I I thought like they wouldn't have introduced this thing unless it was going to be crucial later on. And this movie is distracting you with a whole lot of other images and mm-hmm. fantastical things, but I always knew it would come back to that. Do you know what I'm talking about? The, uh, this is a spoiler, the wishing well yes. picture taking. Uh, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah,
3: yeah.
1: You know,
2: I mean, it, and it was also like that was the most sort of like g- grossly Spielbergian, like, isn't making movies magic, you guys? Like, it's just.
1: <laughs> A series of photographs in a row. Um, Oh, no. It's like you're saying this is Jordan Peele's Hugo. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) I I also think... (laughs) What a Chloe Grace morass. In the same way that, like, that
2: magical realization (laughs) that, like, if there's a movie that doesn't have women in it, I don't really care to watch it. There's just something about having a nemesis that is that much of, like, a a cipher that we have so little insight into. And I thought that the brief moments where uh, OJ was using the energies of animal training at the beast were the most interesting. I thought we were going to get somewhere towards insight, but not
1: really. (laughs) Uh, And also, I just want to say also the the problem with us, I thought too, was, was similar in that it felt like, the movie was throwing 30 similes at you and yet you didn't know what it was comparing it to really or what was being compared, Mm -hmm. you know? So you were sort of like, these are all clues to a larger theme, but here are all the clues. Like that's it. You know, Mm. I'm not a forensic uh, pathologist or whatever. I can't put it all together, but Mm. um, anyway. All right. So we did our best with this movie. Um, go see Nope so you can contribute and tell us how we were wrong, which is always my favorite thing to do on the internet. When we come <laughs> back, we will discuss Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward and also Ethan Hawke and also every other actor that we like.
4: Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see...
1: The Last Movie Stars, a new docu-series on HBO Max directed by Ethan Hawke, dives into the lives of iconic Hollywood couple Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, who, by the way, is the oldest living Best Actress winner. This, of course, follows the fact that Olivia de Havilland selfishly left us at the age of 187 recently. (laughs) The series reenacts transcripts of long-lost interviews with modern actors filling the roles of Hollywood royalty, including George Clooney voicing Paul Newman and Laura Linney as Joanne Woodward. Before we get into this, I just want to say, George Clooney is not exactly the right choice to voice no. Paul Newman. There's, a, there's no. like, George Clooney has, like, um a nefarious smile under everything he says. And Paul Newman is much purer than that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really work out for me. Paul Newman is more like a a Henry Fonda. There's a, there's a Midwestern stoicism about whatever he does though. He is. And I, I don't mean to diss Mm -hmm. the Fonda family much more talented than Henry. Fonda.
3: Oh, obviously I disagree with you about Paul Newman though.
1: Oh, well let's fight. I'm angry.
3: I like see why you're saying that. But like, if anything, watching the docu-series, I was like, damn, this man was cold and like complicated and like a functioning alcoholic. But like, like I was like, Oh, that makes sense. Why you could play a character in a film like HUD, which Mm -hmm. is, I think top two or
1: three. That's my favorite Paul Newman movie for sure. I think it's probably
3: my favorite and my favorite performance of his. And also
2: did it ruin American culture? Possibly.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, you know, uh, it's always interesting, like watching older, I hate the term anti-hero, but yeah. anti-hero films. And you're like, man, this is way more interesting and complicated. People learned the wrong lesson from this
2: movie. Also, let, let me just say, HUD, a movie that knew when you said anthrax, that anthrax is gonna show back up. Like, um, this power of the dog bullshit anthrax is no HUD anthrax. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, We should say uh, just about uh, this series in general. I actually expected it to focus specifically just on their marriage. uh, And it really gets into the performances of both Paul Mm -hmm, Newman and Joanne Woodward, whether or not they were co-starring together. Um, And uh, I'm really pleased to see it get into the performances of Joanne Woodward, which I feel like Mm -hmm. have gone largely under-discussed over the past 20, 30 years. And I have so many that are my favorites. Well,
2: it's that classic problem of you have a celebrity couple Um, who are equally famous when they get together and then the man has another 30 years of a career and the Mm -hmm. woman raises some children and makes some very interesting movies that no one really thinks about or talks about but you know i mean she won her academy award in what 58 he won his 30 Mm -hmm. years later um uh lewis we're you use the classic dating system for Oscars that I do. She won four fifty seven in fifty eight. Correct. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Um, but like you know, what a what a luminous performer and truly someone who is at the forefront of m- making projects she wanted to make. Like Rachel, mm-hmm. Rachel happened was, yeah. on her mm-hmm. shoulders. And, you know, and even, like, towards the end of their career, something like Mr. and Mrs. Bridge is something Mm -hmm. that she did so, she wanted to make happen. And he, like, the wonderful thing about Paul Newman, like, Is treating your spouse a little bit like a human being a grossly noble act in the (laughs) mid-1980s? I'm going to say sure. But, like, he would show up and be in these projects that she really wanted to make so that they would get made. Um, You know, it's, it's always the trouble with those relationships is from a distance they are beautiful and it's really hard to get closer to them because then you just get the specificities of humanity and also mid 20th century gender relations
3: <laughs> yeah right. totally and it's like i've always been really drawn to women artists who were married to more famous artists and who were men and like their how their careers took a back seat see this is why i don't motherfuck day because let me tell you girls no fucking man is worth it dick is abundant <laughs> and low in value please <laughs> ladies anyway but I was really struck I think it's the second or third episode where we hear about how Joanne Woodward thinks of motherhood and I was really struck by two things she described being a mother as it was horror and she meant it in the sense that like, you know, if you're on the set, you feel bad that you're not with your kids. If you're with your kids, you're like longing to be doing your art and feel frustrated. Right. But I think the most interesting quote was quote, if I had to do it all over again, I might not have children. Actors don't make good parents. I was so struck by that.
1: Wow. In your face. Yeah. Take that Angelina. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, well, but also so evocative of just like the crisp
2: line from Hepburn of like, if you do both, you're going to be mediocre at both of them. I was, I knew I had to be good at one or the other and like it, but Catherine Hepburn came from a different era of star when just sort oh, of totally. being the, the cold professional one was a possibility where I feel like. Those women who came of age in the late 1950s, early 1960s, like they gave these very nuanced performances. They were such nuanced uh, like actors, but also like something softer was expected of them.
1: You know, Oh,
3: totally. Yeah.
1: That quote, I think, falls in line with what I think I love about the best Joanne Woodward performances, which is there's a a pragmatism about her characters, Mm. but also like a real saltiness Uh Mm. and which, which I think is atypical for female characters in movies at that time, like to be that snide really, you know, especially in a romantic role. And for that reason, I have uh, said a couple of times and I keep thinking this, the more I see movies of hers, she really was the original Kirsten Dunst to me (laughs) where like you're, you're watching somebody who has like, a little bit of a disgust in their eyes a lot of the time, but, that, but it's always colored in. It's not just, she's not just an eye roll of a performer. There's mm-hmm. like a whole world to yeah. these people. And, um, uh, like I easily could see her in power of the dog in that role uh-huh. that to me feels like a Joanne Woodward role, mm-hmm. you know, but, um, uh, there's lots of movies of hers that have, flown under the radar. Have you ever seen the effects of Gamma Rays on Man in the Moon Marigolds? I've, oh my God, she really is so amazing at it. Yeah, yeah. I, I
3: need to see that, but I was like, oh, why are, like, Newman's work as a director, like, not stream? Most of them are not streaming. You have to kind of just get a DVD that's, you know, not the best looking. And I'm like, damn, you know, someone needs to work on that, because I actually think when they collaborated you know, with him as director her as star that was just like i always find that sort of dynamic like seeing two people who are in a couple who are uh, you know who are artists like be each other's muse yeah that's just so interesting to me especially because i don't know like we don't really think too much about women having muses as much as we think of men having Uh muses
1: totally oh my gosh um
2: lewis have you seen a new kind of love I have not. Um, It is just a straight-up rom-com from 1963 where Joanne Woodward plays a dowdy woman who copies the newest French fashions. Um, Newman is a Playboy uh, uh, journalist, and she ends up getting a Paris makeover, Mm -hmm. like, thank you, Mrs. Harris, um, and then (laughs) uh, pretending to be a high-class, uh, prostitute, um, to, uh, amuse him, and it is just, it's, it's so lovely to see the two of them just in something that is, like, purest fun, like,
3: yeah, totally, I love, I like that,
2: I love when, like, good actors let themselves just be in a comedy,
3: yeah, yeah, come on, be in comedies, y'all. You can, well, maybe not some of y'all can do it <laughs> some of y'all <your> bitches <laughs> ain't
1: funny. <Yes>. Yeah. <laughs> but also, there, specifically about Paul Newman and, and Joanne Woodward too, I think a thing we're missing from the more recent crop of movie stars is specifically the kind of actors that other actors do interviews about. Yeah, Like where we have to ask people, what is it about that person that, I I can't stop thinking about and somebody who is so specific in this regard. And I've been obsessed with this on YouTube recently Mm -hmm. is people talking about Marlon Brando. Uh Um, No, here's the thing. I like Marlon Brando. I mean, obviously I love streetcar named desire and, on the waterfront and godfather, whatever. I'm not fascinated beyond belief. Like, I I, I like I same, get it. Like he, he brought, like, a carnal urgency to a lot of what he did. He's a scary performer sometimes, engaging, emotional, whatever. But I don't need to, like, unpack him for the rest of time. Meanwhile, male interviewers, namely Dick Cavett, I'm pointing out <laughs> Dick Cavett right now, obsessed with finding out what it is about Marlon Brando that makes him tick. And the tenor of the conversation is always like this. The first question is, What do you think of Marlon Brown? And they're talking about, uh, they're talking to some actor like, who's coming to mind? I don't know, Dennis Hopper or Mm Carl Malden or Mm -hmm. someone like that. And they're like, oh, you know, when I first saw him I was really bewitched by him he, he really brought something in on the waterfront I'd never seen Carl Malden's obviously in that movie bad mm-hmm. example but moving on yeah. then the second question is is it true on the set of X movie that Marlon Brando hit you with his car <laughs> and then they're like and they're like he did and I didn't understand it at the time and I don't know why he did that but Marlon's a complicated artist oh, like even boy. the people who were victimized by his weird on set behavior still are propping up his legend well, and who would we ever do that to now, like they would be so called out, right? I mean, the, you know?
2: the trouble is, is that like we only apply the notion of genius to men. Like men yeah, are uh-huh. geniuses, women are vehicles for other people's geniuses, and I feel like our most, a lot of our most interesting and highest functioning actors of the last thirty years have tried to do. They have, they have tried to do a lot, unless we have seen a lot of them. They have been technicians, like. There mm-hmm. there isn't the same level of mystery around like a George Clooney or even a Warren Beatty, just because like we've we've had to see them work in so many directions. And like, you know, I would say that kind of mystique exists mostly around people who are just like clearly monsters or mentally ill
1: or yeah, both. Ill-behaved people. Yeah. Yes, right. <laughs> Yeah. No, uh, uh, so yeah, specifically, also, I, I feel like in the past 20 years, there's been a real move towards relatability among actors. Uh-huh. It's like, like instead of Fuck being relatability, I know, and instead of like, uh, you know, doing your thing and disappearing, you know, the Beyonce thing, which by the way, continues to work for her. People are like, like, she's like the last celebrity we have questions yeah. about, right? Um, but like, it does feel like we're now behind what I'm going to call the Kristen Bell curve, where <laughs> you, it's simply all about every interview you do is I can't believe it. I, uh, I, I, I slipped on a banana peel. I can't believe it. Um, my child cried the other day, you know, it's like, everything is like, mm-hmm. Oh, that happened to me before, or that could happen to me. You know, there's nobody out there. I don't know. I mean, I can think of maybe miles Teller is an ill behaved celebrity. I don't know. Is he really the last thread linking us to, uh, you know, these weirdos of the past. When it
2: comes to mystique, I <laughs> like, there's no performer I have more questions about um, than Alfrey Woodard. And we, <laughs> we don't ask those questions. She does weird, she makes the weirdest fucking choices and has managed to make this like beautiful career out of doing something the way nobody else would. And I don't know. Like, I just feel like she's somebody that we would never be obsessed with. She's somebody that we would never.
3: I'm obsessed with of her. Of
2: course you I'm are. Like, um, like, but I, but I want to, I want more interviews where people are yeah. asking people who worked with her, like what it's like to have that sort of like energy in a scene with you.
3: Yeah. Also,
1: she's she's the interesting case of somebody who I think has been nominated for like seven hundred and seventy-five Emmys and then only one the to Oscar Cross for that we, for a yeah, for a weird performance, or like a not a weird performance, a a a, a shrug of a movie. Yeah. Like that's mm-hmm. all we can really give her, you know.
3: That's upsetting. She was really great in clemency and had that yeah. um, you know, it held on her face at, and just silence, and she's walking out and it doesn't cut. Ooh, I was like, ooh, that's some acting, baby. I love it. <laughs> she's
2: she's also one of those performers who's amazing, but never gets to be more than 15% of a movie. Like, Clemency is, like, the very rare example of something yeah. that's about her, as opposed to her just being this, like, weird little moment in Grand Canyon
1: by the way, what a dead reference! Grand Canyon was, I believe, a screenplay nominee at the time. It's a Steve Martin movie, yes. right? What is it
2: about? And it's like an ensemble. Uh, it's Lawrence Kasdan trying to make, yeah. um, like something that is Big Chili like, but it's basically just like what? I mean, it's essentially kind of Crash. Like, don't we have such big divides
1: between all of us in Los Angeles? But better than mm-hmm. Crash. You know, um, great Alfre Woodard performance passion fish. Yeah. Very surprised mm-hmm. she was not mm-hmm. nominated for that great performance. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, but Angelica specifically, you've written so wonderfully about your uh, favorite stars of the past. Uh, you just wrote something about double indemnity recently. Who are the mm-hmm. like silver screen icons who loom largest to you that you find yourself fascinated with?
3: Um, there's so many. Cause they've lived such interesting lives and some, it goes from everybody like Teresa Harris, who, played the Black best friend in the pre-co Barbara Stanwyck movie, Babyface. Um, And she has like one of the most distinct and illuminating quotes around, this was around the 40s, but it was in a Negro newspaper. Uh, Negro, but you know. Um, It was in a Black newspaper, but they call it a Negro. So that's why it like popped in my head first. And she basically said something to the effect of you know they only allow me to play maids and like these small characters and I have so much more to give but it will never happen in Hollywood that like to that degree and it's and I was like oh I I want to learn more about her Butterfly McQueen also like a Mm -hmm. really really interesting woman but then also I'm like obsessed with like you know the huge the huge overwhelming stars like Marlena Dietrich I'm like Obsessed with the biography her daughter wrote about her, ooh, I was like, it's a thick bitch, but it's oh, it is like first of all really well written, but I was like taken aback about how much shit she was talking about her mom, and I was like, girl me too, ooh, fuck moms, mommy issues for life um, and then of course, if you know me, you know, probably there's a few actors that people probably most associate me with from the like classic era or even into the 16 sixties, like probably the latest era would be someone like Elaine DeLon. Like I'm obsessed with mm. them. Like watching you know who these- else is
1: obsessed with Elaine DeLon. Madonna comes up quite a bit. Anyway, moving I on. I
3: noticed that. Okay. But yeah. anyway, um, Marilyn Monroe, because like all mentally ill women, I have some <laughs> weird protective <laughs> nature towards this white woman. I will never meet. Um, it's the weirdest thing, but I know so many black women who are very protective about Marilyn Monroe, and they're all like, you know we are all a little fucked up, but that's okay, girl. and then of course, betty davis, betty Davis oh, Betty Davis, my bitch, I used to think in high school that oh, this is so I'm such a narcissist that I was maybe the reincarnated version of her because
4: <laughs>
1: oh. Like,
3: she i was born and she died in the same year and i was like maybe the soul i got and, and is I that 89 like, yeah 89 yeah um same year
1: as lucille ball you can count on me for death years okay <laughs> go oh, ahead oh
3: <laughs> yeah death years i i it kind of bothers me how much i remember them but anyway um yeah betty davis is just i think through the history of hollywood through the maybe even the history of american Acting on screen, period. I think she understood women's anger with a specificity and interior life and a boldness that, like, no actress has been able to consistently do over decades, like taking this emotion and like showing different sides of it. You know what I mean? Like, even something like, for example, in This Our Life, where she basically plays one of the most racist motherfucking white women ever, where I did laugh when this when she kills the kid, like, you know, runs over the kid and she like looks back and she's like, oh, fuck this shit. And I was like, girl, that is fucking funny. But the whole dynamic with her blaming it on the black chauffeur of the family and that scene in the jail where she's trying to get him to like lie for her and he's catching on to what she wants. It's like the dynamic is so interesting. But then she sometimes shows like. I think the beautiful side of women being angry about how the world really puts these structures and, and, and weight on our lives that like, it, you know, holds back our freedom as artists, as just human beings, like it's something like all about Eve, which to me is like up there with like a sweet smell of success is like near perfect to outright, maybe even perfect films, which is not a word I usually use to, to describe a film, but, Oh, man, like she is I remember the first time seeing All About Eve. I got really into Betty Davis as a teenager and in college I took a class Star as a tour on Betty Davis. So I got to study. Mm. Um shout out to my college teacher, Jeffrey John Smith. You are the reason why I'm a critic today. <laughs> like teachers really be changing shit. And and he was, you know, he's like a flamboyant older gay man who just like loved these stars. He he also um I took a class star as a tour on Betty Davis, star as a tour on Cary Grant, and a whole class on Gone oh, with the Oh, you're a Wind. big Cary Grant person. Yes, oh, yes, yes, yes. I love yeah. Cary. Ooh, what an, he's an interesting figure too with regards to like how dramatic a difference the Archie Leach to the Cary Grant persona.
2: Okay, the, truly, one of the things we don't have that we had in the 30s was somebody with a nonsensical accent. An accent that just came <laughs> out of a third place that just meant Catherine Hepburn is Catherine Hepburn in America and in the Lion of Winter. And nobody's going to question it. Like, like, like Cary Grant was just sort of like, what is that even? Um, but like, yeah,
1: truly it's a zingy Patois.
2: It, yeah. But like also sort of like the most like warmly charismatic, sexual, like, you know, um, energy coming from this person that you couldn't quite place, like both regionally or sexually.
1: I feel like without actually these both these people, but specifically Betty Davis, if you deleted any one particular star in like American cinematic history, who would leave the largest hole? I think Betty Davis mm-hmm. is number one because not only was she such a powerhouse, and as you said, really articulates a kind of Rage and and sorry to be crass, cunty thing that I I think did not Mm -hmm. exist before. I honestly think she invented the idea of being a cunt. There's something like you know it's like I'm in your face, I'm right, and now I'm going to slam the door.
2: There's something about being made by of human bondage, like it's 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 the like worst possible role to have. You're just. like the worst and that she managed to make that something where she got a fucking writing Academy Award nomination because everyone was obsessed with her. It really does sort of like open up the door to say, find that energy in these other places, you know, in stories that are less disposed to them.
3: Oh totally, yeah. I just of, of human her.
1: bondage, by the way, fascinating to watch because it's the one of the few Betty Davis movies where she's not the star marquee person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like the movie, the move is more furtive about learning who that character is, whereas in every other Betty Davis movie, like, she storms off the veranda and into the screen. Like we're we're immediately acquainted with who she is and know all of her ambitions because she says them. Yeah, you know. Um. Uh. But also, yeah, you're right, Cary Grant too. That like the combination of like, um, I'm gonna call it athleticism like Mm -hmm. there's just the way he like weaves through a scene is very interesting mixed with a bit of naughty charisma Mm -hmm. like that there's like a music to everything he does in a way that is not the same as someone like Humphrey Bogart or whoever else was lingering around at the time Um, you know even Jimmy Stewart or whatever whom I whom I adore and I think in a way Jimmy Stewart is underrated in that he brought a realism that precedes the actors we say brought realism
3: oh totally you know, I yeah, I think people don't know how to talk about screen acting. That's why I'm so obsessed with writing about it, because it's like a very it's like it's like trying to capture smoke in your hand. Right. Like uh-huh. it's so it's such a curious art to kind of study. But I think, you know, I believe stars can be auteurs. And the problem with Hollywood today is we don't have star auteurs for a number of reasons about the industry that I think is less about the talent, although. There are some of these kids. I I do not. You're going to have to explain it to me. You know what I mean? Like, but I want more Star Tours who have like these long, interesting, rich careers and have some control over their image in an interesting way. But I think the relatability factor you mentioned earlier, Lewis, and just IP is now the star. Mm -hmm. So that's that's what takes precedence. And like, sure these actors post like these you know superheroes they have complicated like Chris Evans is in a weird place I think like I don't find him interesting as an actor but, but I'm like the gray man like oh I guess you like working with those Russo brothers but also <laughs> Ryan, Ryan Gosling why the fuck was he in that movie I'm like Bitch, this is what yeah. you came back for this right
1: concerning concerning yes no, like even Timothy Chalamet being in Dune it's like couldn't you have made three more I'm not saying this is the best movie on earth but like beautiful boys you know like something about where I'm like wow you're you're on the brink and we're obsessed with your uh, uh severity as an actor kind of roles
2: I'm I'm fascinated by these people who like sign into the Marvel Cinematic Universe which becomes this leviathan that like consumes all aspects of their career is there any space left to do anything else and it's like Sure. You're making a bunch of money, but like, what are you doing that you've committed yourself wholly to this Mm -hmm. thing Mm -hmm. for seven or eight years cameoing here and doing your own movies or whatever? It's like,
1: what did you want out of this? Like, really? What did you want? You know, no, uh, it, yeah. now, now the question of Elizabeth Olsen has come to mind, which mm-hmm. is she came to us in Martha Marcy May Marlene, mm-hmm. and once upon a time that would have been the kind of movie she made for the rest of her career. Yeah. Now she is doing this this witch shit, which witch. It, um, unless it's related to Miss Stevie Nicks, it's not something I need to well, see. And the, the thing so, is, it's
2: like she's so good in it, but also just the the trouble of being in a machine like that is like a lot of it's really poorly written and does not give her anything interesting to do. Um yeah.
3: Yeah, I'm going to sound pretentious for just a second, but it fucking pisses me off two big things about fucking stars right now. Besides the fact that they're ugly and I think a lot of these bitches are untalented. <laughs>
1: But the then, ugliness is a paramount concern to me too. Yeah, yeah,
3: beauty is the pleasure principle, baby. That's why we love film. We want to look at interesting faces. At least their faces are not interesting, and they're not beautiful enough for to be interesting either. But anyway, uh, so maybe three things. But uh, I'll say that's number one. But number two, these bitches don't be liking film. I'm like, why are you mm-hmm. in this industry if you don't know shit about it? And number three, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I want artists. I don't want brands. I don't want to watch a bunch of brands playing off each other and these sexless, boring ass movies. Mm -hmm. I want art. I want passion for the art. I want to see people wanting to create something that like gets under your skin and has maybe even a lasting effect on the world. The moment the Marvel bubble busts, these fucking movies are already forgettable. They're only going to be talked about in a business sense. Yeah, there's there's shit. I'm sorry. There's shit.
1: there are two people who I feel like have fought tooth and nail to maintain a sort of singular artistry as screen presences. And what's gone on with them is I I think related to this conversation. One is Kate Blanchett, who I feel Mm -hmm. like has, has in a Betty Davis way been given these, these um, protagonist roles that are super uh, dimensional and, uh, and eye popping, right? Like Kate Blanchett is one of those people you just can't stop looking at because she, every micro choice registers, Mm -hmm. you know, but at the same time, it's like what she's able to do becomes packaged and expected and so then we put her in movies like Nightmare Alley where it's like Ugh. it's it's like an idea of an idea of Kate Blanchett mm-hmm. as opposed to like her getting to explore that said we're getting this new movie Tar from uh Todd Field and it better be something i'm ready for her to come back um and also Helen Bonham Carter who i thought <laughs> once upon a time was like one of our most interesting actors and then as time went on she more often than not, got to be, like, coloring book illustrations of Helena Bonham Carter as opposed to the awesome, you know, strange and cerebral and sarcastic person we met in Room with a View.
2: I mean, the rough thing is is that, like, the studio system was terrible and exploitative in so many ways, mm-hmm. but it allowed a relationship between the star and the the process of developing a movie to exist. We're now, we're relying on CAA to do that. Um, mm. And like, I, I think like having everything flow through kind of douchey bros at agencies <laughs> leads to this like sort of, restricted notion of what these people do and as you guys were saying earlier this attempt to just recreate the success that we knew before and for these people who aren't making their own stuff like you want to know what happened to Helena Bonham Carter? Ismail Merchant died. James yes. Ivory got real <laughs> old. And, like, the thing is, is, she is capable of so much more. But for a period of time, she had people present who were thinking, like, who were very capable filmmakers who were like, what can we do with Helena? And yeah. I, I think it, you know, it is rough when you're just having, especially as a woman gets older like and especially like i feel so sorry for those actresses born in the late 40s early 50s just for the fact that like the for glenn the good role every year is going to go to meryl and then yeah. um glenn has to put together a career around that and she's done a beautiful job of it but it it required compromises
1: yeah when you look at the uh, filmography of glenn close it's not like she would necessarily always like play the roles Meryl got like right. they're not kind of like one for one replacements for each other or anything mm-hmm. but when you read through all her roles it does feel like six are missing uh-huh. you know like yeah. you know that are like the size and scale and power uh, that she can deliver that said I do believe Glenn is the w- rare actress who a uh, movie actress whose best role is TV I think Damages is the best thing she ever did
3: I really dug Damages I haven't like gone back to rewatch it but. I was watching it while it aired and I dug it. I love yeah. her performance in it.
1: It's, it's like so a beach brutal. read. That's actually amazing. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm.
3: We need more beach read cinema that is fun. <laughs> where I just like, I want some pleasure. You know what I mean? I just want to feel like, Ooh, this is fun, bitch. Ooh, these people are hot. Ooh, shouldn't, you know? streamers,
2: shouldn't streamers be positioned to do that for us? Like there was a brief period of time when like Netflix was giving us kind of an indie-ish rom-com every Friday like and I was like cool this is going to be great and then the thing is is that like it is this Spielberg obsession like uh, like everyone is like I I don't know that it's a Spielberg obsession but it's like uh, everyone wants to make a gigantic movie and now you Mm -hmm. have these streamers that are trying to make gigantic movies and it's like who makes Under the Tuscan Sun for us right now?
3: Oh my God I love (laughs) Under the Tuscan Sun I would love like an Under the Tuscan Sun with some lesbians.
1: Um, Mm. Black
3: lesbians specifically.
1: Under the Hyundai Tucson Sun, (laughs) yes.
3: But like, it's just, I feel like film is in such a weird place. And someone tweeted this to me when I was saying on Twitter a little bit ago, I need to take a break though. What a demonic place.
2: Yes, But
3: (laughs) basically I'd like said something like, and I was being nice by using this word, but I was saying, television is aggressively and tellingly mid right now like just so mid to to like not good that it's like, because right. there's so much stuff out there. So, of course, just law of averages kind let, of thing. Let me
2: tell you a theory. We have been done in by the eight to 10 episode season because seasons mm. are no longer television seasons. Seasons are now a pilot. Like, everybody's mm-hmm. first season is just giving you an interesting idea, leaving you on a cliffhanger, and you're like, mm-hmm. what a great show this could be. And then the second season comes back and it's not a fucking show. And, and it's why, you know, like, I, I'm really excited. oh star trek strange new worlds being oh
3: my god it's so good it is so much fun it is
2: no absolutely when i realized they were just going to do a body switch episode for uh, for an episode i was excited and when the next one decided that it was going to be aliens i was like this is not for me but good for you um yeah also I'm looking forward to seeing 22 goddamn Abbott elementaries. Like I am looking yeah. forward to seeing <laughs> yeah. somebody have to make a real fucking season of television.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, the TV I grew up on, like, I feel like the best example from like the 90s that I think people should pay more attention to, at least, is Deep Space Nine.
1: I'm oh, interesting. I've never track, seen. I, I'm that, huge, that's the that's one that's, Jerry Ryan?
3: No, that's Voyager. That's Voyager. It's okay. It's okay. But like basically like Deep Space Nine, especially second season onward, still like, you know, because they have long ass seasons. There's lots of episodic, it feels very episodic in certain ways, but they have emotional arcs and certain like larger arcs happening that like provide a a good through line. It's really balanced narratively in a way that I'm, I think that's why Strange New Worlds is so good because Mm -hmm. they obviously took some lessons from Deep Space Nine. But, like, I think the problem is people doing television, like, television was looked down upon. And don't worry, everybody, I still kind of look down upon it because, (laughs) like, Betty Davis, I'm a cunt who loves film. But, you know, I feel like then people working in television, especially as filmmakers have moved over, they're like... I think sometimes like they, they they're they like almost embarrassed, like and I think you shouldn't be like that and be saying because like saying, oh, I'm not making a TV show. I'm making an eight hour movie. It's like, yeah. no, you're making a TV show and you need to treat it as a TV show because TV has different narrative and visual constraints and dynamics. And I feel like people don't accept those constraints when I actually think they would open up some really cool ideas.
2: Angelica, like have you watched The Bear yet? Yes, I've oh, watched I all still of have the Oh, I've not seen it yet, uh, the, Yeah, uh, I, I just thought that the bear, look, I, I'm annoyed with half hours that don't have jokes in them. Um, but Me too. the bear doing the job of telling a concrete story over eight episodes, mm-hmm. but telling a distinct story within each of those episodes was mm-hmm. just like, thank God someone paid attention in class. Like, shouldn't yeah. we be expecting this out of all of our shows?
3: Mm-hmm, bitch. It's a TV show. Yeah. But yeah, the bear was good at that. I'm a Chicago, girly. I've been living in Chicago for over 10 years. That's when I'm going to start saying. So it sounds like it's less.
1: <laughs> um,
3: so it was just, you know, interesting to watch it on that level. But yeah, I appreciated it for that reason, too, because it's just like, yeah, you you have stories within stories and that's how it works. You have your art, emotional arcs, but you can focus on like this one problem in an episode. Yeah. I like that. It's like it makes you savor storytelling in a different way. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's something to be embraced.
1: I think uh, to re- uh, get back to a point you made earlier, I think a reason a lot of uh, current allegedly prestigious TV is mid. Is that TV is really good at imitating what prestige looks like? Uh-huh. Which is to say, they cast that big, prestigious actor. Mm-hmm. There are these kinds of pauses. Like there's a feel to prestige. And a uh, guy, uh, you in on Pop Rock, famously had a term for this, which was fautige, You and Karen Tonksen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but th- there's there's a sense of you can tell it's going for an elevated, um, award worthy thing, but. And people can be fooled by that, even though it's just re, do, it's a retread of other things you've seen for before. For like, example,
2: one of my new favorite breeds of camp is a television program that is very certain that it's good and it's very not. I am, of course, speaking of Showtime's The First Lady, um, Ooh, and yeah. like it, it was, but also The First Lady had it like that Michelle Pfeiffer performance was so. Good. I Imagine like getting
1: anything her. less from her. Yeah, I know, life.
3: queen, queen. But
1: a- even Britney Spears knows this. She posted about her. I love that. <laughs> I thought it
3: was cute.
1: Britney Spears also posted an obscure Natalie Imbruglia song recently oh. called "Leave Me Alone," and I just want to say i'm not like a britney stan but you can tell the last time she cared about music for real was 1998 and i that's me too so actually britney and i are now in conjunction i want
2: to talk about real star? like that (laughs) is a human being who as long as you know we're all hoping things continue to go well but like what weird energy she brings to us and how much i appreciate it and love her for what she's bringing
1: no, Instagram only has like three good things going for it. It's like that and Amy Mann's weird <laughs> daily comics about mundane things in her life. And I, I don't know, abs? What's the other thing? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you all for that. What an edifying conversation. Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, thanks also. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll be right back with Keep It. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode and also the only part of the episode with a name. So naturally, it's our favorite segment since it's the only one we've called the segment moving right along. It's Keep It! And uh, Angelica, since you're the newest member of the Keep It! fold, I'm going to force you to begin. What's your Keep It! today?
3: I was originally going to talk about the reaction to the Till trailer. I don't know if you noticed mm. that came out Um and like it sparked another conversation about black trauma that I thought was so threadbare and empty. But I don't want to talk about that because that's too heavy. And talking about Negroes with white people, I have a limit with that. There's it's a limit where I'm like, I, I'm, I'm done. This was cute. Um, but I got to talk about Brad Pitt in that skirt. Um, oh,
1: sure. Yeah.
3: Okay Brad I know you're not listening even though I've written quite a bit about you and it's all really fascinating (laughs) I actually ranked all his performances so I know so much about Brad Pitt at this point my brain also that's so many
1: performances oh my my God. god
3: I lost my mind during it I had like months to write but I was like oh my god but Brad first of all I appreciate skirts on men like do that great i just wish the outfit was better and Mm. two i don't trust your bitch ass okay i'm i'm noticing all these little sources talking shit about angelina this "Mm, i see what you're doing bitch i see what you're fucking doing you're relying on this certain level of misogyny and you're playing like this oh i'm a cool like great guy and she's holding me back from my kids like every deadbeat dad and i'm sorry I don't fuck with deadbeat dads. I have one. And that was enough to deal with. (laughs) So, Brad, get it together emotionally. Like, what the fuck are you doing? But also, I am reviewing Bullet Train and it better be good or I'm going to be mad.
1: I am seeing that on my birthday. I'm going oh. to be in the Chicago area. Oh, uh, are we uh, going to be birth- at the same screening? Yes, I hope so, because I bought my ticket. Oh, you, you can meet my friend Andy, and you will you be like, oh, that's, that's the kind of person Louis is. <laughs> um, hello, Andy, who listens to this podcast. What um, was going to say about Brad Pitt? I have to say, I've mistrusted him specifically ever since his awards run for Once Upon a Time in oh, Hollywood, totally. where every time he gave a speech, it had like... 10 jokes from, like, the writers of Brooklyn Nine-Nine or something. Like, I was like, you didn't come up with that. What? Who's who's writing this? Corny
3: as shit. And he is smart, though. I think he's one of the most cunning stars. Him becoming friendly with Jennifer Aniston during his, like, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, like, lead-up to his Oscar. Uh, the Gwyneth Paltrow interview that came out recently. He's basically shoring up good will and, like, a certain nostalgia points. It's just super interesting watching him and his team
1: work. And there's definitely a team at play there. Now, I have to ask about this Brad Pitt um, list of performances. What is way higher up than we would expect? Did California kill?
3: No, I'm trying to think what is the surprising one? (sighs) I don't think there were necessarily a lot of surprises. I mean, the top three was, like, a lot of recent work. I really loved him in Ad Astra, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but the assassination of Jesse James by the Carl Robert Ford mm. is like my bitch. I think it's more interesting on the this is what is super low level, like rewatching Interview with a Vampire. I was like, oh, you're like not right for this and you're too stiff because I don't think you understand the right way to play the role, but I did appreciate all the homoeroticism.
1: I, the, my thing with the Interview with a Vampire is whenever there's... Uh, trivia about the highest grossing queer cinema of all time like interview with the vampire gets to be at the top and it's like not we just have no rules for what this is anymore no, you wait. know
3: mm, i let's oh the way people talk about quote unquote queer cinema quote unquote black cinema is the most but especially queer cinema because i'm like just because it has gay people doesn't mean to me it's queer queer is also a sort of Artistic lineage of how you're kind of bucking trends and like doing more interesting shit. Yeah, like,
1: subversion or something. Yeah, yeah like, there needs to be something else in it. Yeah, yeah
3: don't give me boring fucking straight seeming shit. You know what I mean? Also,
1: like, what like
2: the sheer tonnage of queer cinema that is just straight people talking about us that is like I, uh, no gay people involved in the process at all and is just straight hilarious. people speculating about what our lives might be like.
3: And straight people speculating has only led to hell. So let's not y'all need to stop speculating. Also, <laughs> y'all need and, and
2: kissing scenes between women where they only touch each other's hair. I am truly obsessed <laughs> with straight women um pretending to lesbian kiss.
3: Oh my god, you're right. Oh yeah, that's true.
1: The MTV best kiss award When occasionally there'd be like a pseudo Queer one it was always two straight people And then Mm -hmm. they would get to go on the stage And be like oh isn't that And then run right off with their golden Uh, Popcorns Guy what is your keep it this week
2: Okay multiverses You can keep it please don't tell me a story and then unmake the story you told me because there are lots of dimensions. That's not interesting to me. Please tell your story based on the way that human beings work. Like everything, everywhere, all at once told us a great and beautiful story using multiple dimensions. Also, so did um, sliding doors. We've got it. It's taken care of. You don't need to, like, I'm I'm obsessed with this straight boy instinct to make something complex it, through the most artificial means possible so that it seems like a cool little trap while saying nothing about interiority or human beings or anything like that. Every straight guy thinks inception is the best movie in the world Ew. and n- like truly nothing happens in it that is any way relevant to me. So like w- watching like this doctor strange bullshit, like Ugh. even the mm. Spider-Man I didn't find particularly interesting. Was I dazzled by the work of the line producers and lawyers who managed to make all of this possible? Yes. I would love to watch a documentary (laughs) about that process. Uh, But when it comes to the idea of multiverses, you can keep it.
1: Oh yeah. That's a good. Well, uh, honestly, I, I wasn't enamored of everything everywhere all at once. I liked it as an acting obstacle course for Mm. Michelle. And uh, she of course nailed it. Like as you're watching the movie, you're thinking, What did they even tell her to to think about in this scene? Because it's it's just jutting with all these sorts of weird intentions and Mm. um, scenarios. So at any given point, like 15 things are going on. But ultimately, it, it just felt like to me... 100,000 easy pitches. Like, oh, now do a scene where you have these crazy fingers. Now do a scene where you have... that. Like, to me, they didn't add up to anything. And Mm. you got the gimmick after five minutes. So to me, uh, it was tedious. Unfortunately, I agree with Joyce Carol Oates about this.
2: Like, (laughs) I, I really thought that taking, like, a lady who runs a laundromat And that's supposed to be a boring movie. That's supposed to be a tiny movie and sort of like showing us very visually the bigness that is within this human being, like how how much potential she had, like while watching that movie, I I was like, my mom was a cafeteria lady who didn't do much like outside of her little small town. And I was like, I'm excited for my mom to watch this. I am excited for her to think about the largesses that exist within her.
1: Mm. Mm. That's beautiful. Um, I, I I felt the movie also was a bit obsessed with you finding it impressive. Oh, like, can you believe we're moving I mean, this direction? What about look, this, direction and no, this direction? At the end of
2: the day, it's a movie by a yeah. two boy directing team who are mm-hmm. my least favorite thing on the planet. Like, seriously, a two boy directing team watch walks into an office. <laughs> in Hollywood and says anything of the development execs starts salivating. Like mm-hmm. they
1: just can't get enough of them. Well put. And my keep it for today is also about a two person team, but that person team is Mayan Bielik and Ken Jennings, who were both just named uh, at, for the time being, the hosts of jeopardy they're going to both keep doing it in tandem mm-hmm. now, I am fine with this. I think we have established at this point that reading questions is something many people can do, and in fact it, you know there's there wasn't a, a ton of x factor to what Alex trebek did, even though there was some. I think Alex Trebek was really good at intensifying the stakes of Jeopardy. I think he mm-hmm. was really good at um having mystique like being somebody who could be both proud of contestants and aloof and within that avuncular zone mm. you wanted there There was something you. you just you never knew what would get his goat kind of and it was exciting to see you know just his weirdness on screen there was something weird about him and it was fun how it interacted with the game my keep it goes to the complaints people have about B. Alec, I'm not saying you can't prefer Ken Jennings. I think I would ultimately say I prefer Ken Jennings, too, just because he comes from the world of trivia. So his reactions to correct answers and, oh, that's a common misconception that, you know, it's the book of Revelations when it's the book of Revelation. You know, just his know-how about certain uh, d- d- about trivia in general really adds something to the game. People's comments about why Mayim is not good at the job are so shocking to me, and they Mm. are rampant. The one I see is she's so mean, which she literally is just reading the correct answers. Is it really mean to be like, you know, Mm. the answer is the book of Revelation? She's not being quote unquote another word I hear all the time smug no she literally has to do the job of correcting people and correcting pronunciations which mm-hmm. a lot of the time if if I'm playing a trivia game or whatever and I have to say the answer out loud I'll, I'll get the pronunciation mm-hmm. wrong because I've only read it for example on trivia sites mm-hmm. so you know I might not know it's pronounced um, uh, I don't know vehemently or oh. I don't know whatever the word is but um, I just feel like the criticisms are unfair and strange. I mean, you can say like she doesn't she's not as knowledgeable as Ken Jennings or she's not as uh, 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 I don't know, intense as Ken Jennings, I guess, or as Alex Trebek. But it just feels like she's been she's done a a good enough job and uh, has been efficient and smart. And people who otherwise would never have given her the chance to even attempt the job are the ones dictating why she is bad at it. Mm. And so uh, I just have to say, again, when when I watch a woman reading like answers, I've, I, for me it's almost emotional for me because it's the rare chance we get to see a woman being authoritative Mm -hmm. in in, in this zone. There are so few female game show hosts. And I think Mm -hmm. there's a reason for that because we don't want them to feel like the smartest person in the room or to run a dynamic in a room. Mm -hmm. And um, like if you watch seventies, eighties game shows, which I I love, I love all these shows. They are all just random, very old white men. And you know. it's like, that's what we're comfortable calling in authority. And I still think we have to bug that oh, going totally, forward. Oh, totally. Totally. So, um, <laughs> or either of you Jeopardy people. Guy is one of the few gay comedians who I believe might be better at trivia than I am. And it is disturbing.
3: <laughs> no, I'm not a Jeopardy gal or do much trivia, to be honest.
1: Really? You seem like you contain trivia multitudes.
3: Oh, that's so sweet of you to say. I think the only time I've done a trivia thing, you know, I do sometimes like movie trivia. but like. My friends are like, we're not doing that with you,
1: uh, <laughs> guy. Do you uh, bar trivia much recently?
2: I mean, I, I had a real run earlier in the year where I was going to mm. high tops on Tuesdays, and it's purest mm. delight. But like, I honestly like should not be going to a place where I'm just answering questions and drinking like it is indulging in two uh habits that I enjoy far too much um but it it is truly the time when I feel most alive um
1: I I just want to say gay pub trivia is a specific kind of queer hub that needs to be mm. amplified more because it really it's just like it's the rare place where all of the particular information that gay people accrue is given a place to shine. Like, why? Where else can I talk about knowing that? I don't know, obscure Janet Jackson single from nineteen ninety. Because they're not going to ask about that on Jeopardy.
2: Well, like, and also, gay obsessive, gay male obsessive fussiness is something that we see in fashion <laughs> and like belltoit yes, yes. definition. But mm. you aren't always seeing it as it applies to you know um municipal geography in the united states and yeah. you know it all just comes down to we all developed crazy powers while we were closeted and then lost them the minute we started having sex like we just <laughs> there was a lot of time to learn about like urban boundaries when you were 16 and alone mm,
3: you know that is true that, that is really true <laughs>
1: No, I've kept mine going like you like I've decided to power through like I'm still on the Wikipedia for best supporting actress gleaning <laughs> information. So just know Joan Loring and the corn is green starring Betty Davis. I see you and respect you.
3: That movie. Oh, my God. Both. <laughs> there are some <laughs> Betty Davis movies that I was like, girl, I, I love you, but I can't watch this.
2: That, and but, I still watch it. that Betty Davis <laughs> and Catherine Hepburn both made a the corn is green 30 years apart from each other fascinates me. <laughs> It is fascinating. They're, they're the same age,
1: right? Yes, they are. Yeah, I think both uh, both born in the nineteen hundred, like the first yeah. decade of the twentieth century. Yes, right. Okay, that has been keep it. I hope it has been an edifying episode for everybody else because I am simply awash in in good vibes. My least favorite word, vibes. Does the erosion of my brain in the past couple of years, mostly thanks to the pandemic, but mm-hmm. it really feels like queer people to describe anything and anywhere going on vibes is the word we have chosen. And I don't know even what it means anymore.
3: <laughs> yeah. I'm that would actually have been a good keep it. Cause there was that article on the bear about, Oh, it's just vibes or whatever. And I'm like, no, what you're talking about is maybe a problem with TV. That's not like, what the fuck sort of criticism
1: is that? Can y'all use words <laughs> that right? Yeah.
3: Like the fuck.
1: Let's try a sentence. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, thank you to Angelica for being here. And this will be the first time of many. So this is basically a prison sentence. I'm sorry. You're here Oh, I now. can't
3: wait. I love a good fucked up relationship where I'm stuck with people in a small room.
1: <laughs> it sounds hot. <laughs> yeah. And Guy, thank you as always for your expertise, your laugh, mm-hmm. and who you are.
2: Always a pleasure. Lovely to see you guys. And lovely to meet you, Angelica.
3: Lovely to meet you too. This was so much fun. I love talking about Betty. Oh, what a queen.
1: We'll be back next time with a full Whatever Happened to Baby Jane deep dive. Victor Buono, your name will be spoken. This has been Keep It. See you next week.
4: Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Chris Lord. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III. And Louis Fertel. Our editor is Charlotte
1: Landis and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Nara Malconian, and Delan Villanueva for production support every week.